All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is July 11th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is on the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Kursk. Comrades might remember that back in February, we did the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad. These are classes that we're doing to honor all these battles in the Great Patriotic War as we work our way up to the 80th anniversary of Victory Day in 2025. So the Battle of Kursk, of course, happened 80 years ago, around the time of July 5th to August 23rd, uh, 1943. And now we're going to be honoring it with this class. Comrade, is there anything that you would like to say before we get started with the class tonight? Absolutely, comrade. Good evening, everybody. Okay, the Battle of Kursk. So as you know, the war between Germany and the USSR began in the summer of 1941. It was Operation Barbarossa. And it was a success for Germany at first until the Red Army was able to stop the Wehrmacht at the gates of Moscow in winter. Okay. A year later, 1942, Hitler does it again, this time in the south. And again, the Red Army is retreating is being beaten basically until wintertime, Battle of Stalingrad. And they destroy Germans' six army, the very best they had. Okay, the third time is a charm. So Hitler is throwing the dice again, this time in the summer of 1943. That was his last chance because he thought during summertime, the Red Army cannot fight that good. But this time they did. So here we go. We're going to talk about the Battle of Kursk. Began on July 5th, ended on August 23rd. 50 days, not so long, not like Stalingrad. Okay. And one thing in that movie, you're going to see basically German tanks versus Soviet tanks. German tanks is basically the Tiger tank and the Panzer. The Soviet tank is a T 34, the legendary T 34. Now you're going to wonder which one is what. You're going to see them together, you know, hitting each other. So an easy way to tell, the German tanks, Tiger and Panther, they have a massive muzzle break at the end of the barrel, you know, of the cannon, right? Massive, like a viper head. When the T-34 is totally smooth, you can see that a mile away. Another thing, the turret of the T-34 is forward of the center of gravity. On the Tiger and Panther is exactly on top of the center of gravity. So you can tell also. Okay, so that's to help you in the movie. Okay, comrade, let's do it. All right, so what we'll be learning today is uh, briefly about the events between the battles of Stalingrad and Kursk. Then uh, the Battle of Kursk, the largest tank battle in history, and the significance of it to this day relating the Great Patriotic War to today's war in Ukraine. As a matter of fact, comrade, this is incredibly special, is that all this battle, of course, especially in the South, is exactly where they are battling now, you know, in the Kharkov region, okay? Close to the Donbass, the prelude. Okay, in the dark summer of 1942, Hitler had launched Operation Blau in Ukraine and Southern Russia whose objective was a seizure of the Caucasus oil fields and the control of the lower Volga around Stalingrad down to the Caspian Sea. Operation Blau resulted in the Battle of Stalingrad, where the Wehrmacht elite Sixth Army was 
annihilated. The Red Army routed German forces in the Caucasus who had to retreat hurriedly to the Crimea through the Sea of Azov, you know, where the bridge is, to avoid complete destruction. After the victory at Stalingrad, the Red Army launched a general offensive in the south and achieved important success on a front of 1,500 kilometers, but fell short of accomplishing its most ambitious goals due to German surprising resilience after its defeat at Stalingrad, as proven by the Red Army's failure to hold Kharkov. Okay, comrade, that's called the Third Battle of Kharkov. Kharkov had four battles. First one in October 41, the second one in May 42 before Stalingrad, and the third one was after Stalingrad, and it was, it was a failure. Ayinkersk, the Soviet winter offensive ground to a halt with the advent of the Rasputitsa, which means in Russian, the snow melting season, when Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine turn into martial mud. Starting in the early spring of 43, the Red Army remained on the defensive. One peculiar aspect of the front line was the existence of a huge bulge pointing to the west and centered around the town of Kursk, about halfway between Orel to the north and Kharkov to the south, both of these cities in German hands. This particularity of the front line presented the Wehrmacht with the ideal perspective of enveloping the Kursk salient with a pincer maneuver toward the south from Orel and toward the north from Kharkov. This wasn't lost on Zhukov, who could predict the intentions of the German high command. In April 43, he suggested to Stalin the possibility to prepare for and to absorb the German attack, and then launched a powerful counteroffensive. Zhukov was pushing the right buttons with Stalin, who after consulting with the front commanders to put to the test Zhukov's position, fully agreed with the marshal's plan. In the month of May, Soviet intelligence totally confirmed German intentions and preparations. In the spring of 43, Germany began energetic preparations for the offensive, codenamed Operation Citadel. Total mobilization was proclaimed, and the Wehrmacht received 2 million more men than in 1942. Altogether, Germany had 6.3 million prisoners of war and foreign slave labor in its war industry improved version of its best tanks, Tiger and Panzer Panzer, were developed. The Wehrmacht put 71% of its forces on the Eastern Front, 4.8 million soldiers, plus 500 Allied troops. There were, you know, Hungary, Italy, Spain, uh, for a total of 5 million soldiers. Facing them were 6.4 million Red Army troops. For Operation Citadel, the Wehrmacht concentrated 900,000 men, 2,700 tanks, 10,000 guns and mortars, and 2,000 planes. All right, we're going to watch a brief part from the Unknown War, which we're going to be watching throughout this class.
Hello, I'm Bert Lancaster. I'm standing in the fields at Kursk. The largest armored battle in history took place here in July of 1943. Hitler planned to annihilate the Soviet army at Kursk and make one final effort to win the war in the east. Here, thousands of tanks, both Soviet and German, clashed in a battle of monumental size. Kursk was one of the most significant single engagements of the 20th century. After the Nazis' defeat in this battle, Hitler's tanks, the pride of his army, would never again regain the strength which had carried them from the English Channel to the Volga. And never again would the Germans meet the Russians on even terms. After Kursk, Hitler's ability to launch a major offensive was severely curtailed. Our story, the world's greatest tank battle. In the spring of 1943, the Red Army readied itself for its summer campaign. In particular, it prepared for an offensive from its salient at Kursk. The winter had ended with a great Soviet victory, the capture of an entire German army at Stalingrad. After Stalingrad, the initiative lay with the Red Army. Humiliated by his defeat, Hitler hungered for revenge. He would bite off the Kursk salient at its base and annihilate the Russian armies within it. He called it Operation Citadel. On April 15, 1943, Hitler called for a victory that would shine out like a signal beacon to the world. And Nazi Germany responded with solemn vows. Reinforcements poured toward the east as if from an inexhaustible well, train after train. from all over conquered Europe, German arms production had increased. In 1943, aircraft production was one and a half times what it had been the year before.
number of tanks came off the assembly lines. There were new models, high-powered, heavier gun, more thickly armored. Panther Mark V's and Tiger Mark IV's, the best that Germany could produce. they seemed invincible. Nothing, it seemed, could withstand their advance. The Wehrmacht began to mess. Hitler's Operation Citadel called for 20 divisions to the north of the salient. 28 to the south, and 7 at the salient's tip. 16 of them were armored divisions. The Russians watched the Nazis concentrate, counting. 900,000 men. 2,700 tanks, 10,000 guns, 2,000 planes. All right, and we'll stop for a round of questions and comments. Hey, um, so as soon as I heard that, heard you say that we're um, doing the Battle of Curse, highly, highly recommend. I love uh, The Unknown War. It's a great uh, documentary series, but everyone should watch the first and all of the films called liberation the first of yeah the first of which is about the battle of kursk and then it continues through the rest of the war and it was made in the 70s so the production value is very high some of the shots that they have uh they just get they get so many tanks and it's a very good series of movies it should be mandatory uh watching in my opinion um, but the first one is about the Battle of Kursk, and it's on YouTube, the whole darn thing. So I'll put the link in the chat for the first one if it can be shared, and um, everyone should go enjoy it. That's all. Thank and you, I'm comrade. Glad you, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Liberation, comrade, because you are totally right. It is the very best uh, Soviet movie on, on the war. And um, as you said, the first one, it has five series. And uh, if you start watching it, you're going to stay up all night. I guarantee you that, comrades. And the first two are the Battle of Kursk. And you know what's really cool about Liberation is that the actors look exactly like the historical people. Like you look at Stalin, you think it's a real Stalin. Molotov, Vasilevsky, Zhukov, Vatutin, Rokosovsky, Konev, identical. It's amazing. Watch this movie, comrades. All right. 
Thank you, comrade. Uh, it did. It was a uh, it uh, twenty seven hundred uh, tanks. The number the Germans had. Yeah, twenty seven hundred. That's right. Okay. The Soviets had more though. Yeah, and I just wanted to say real quick that when you think of those numbers, you think of nine hundred thousand Nazi troops. You think of two hundred something thousand different you know, tanks on the field. This was a massive battle that we've not seen anything like since. This is why it's called the largest tank battle in history. Um, and another thing that I wanted to say real quick is, before I forgot to bring it up in this class, is it's funny, one of the you know derogatory terms directed towards communists often is the word tanky. And it's usually because of the interventions in Hungary and Czechoslovakia in the 50s and the 60s. But honestly, when I first heard it, I thought they were referring to the Battle of Kursk. And it's like, all right, I'm proud of that. Call me a tanky. We won that tank battle. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. Is there something specific to the tactics or to the the area of battle that just happened to favor tanks? Or did both sides choose this is it? I'm just wondering, like, why so many such a focus on tanks? Yeah, the area is wide open, comrades. It's uh, to the north of Kharkov, you know, Belgorod. Uh, Orel, all that wide open field and stuff, you know, it's perfect for tank battles. Yeah, and I'll add as well that, you know, even though it's wide open, and of course you would think that, oh, you know, a tank just suits a tank because it's right out there, there's no cover. It's even less ideal for infantry battles. And a lot of the strength of the Wehrmacht was the Luftwaffe, but even they weren't able to have the upper hand in that battle because of the sheer amount of Soviet armor and also artillery. This was a battle where the Katusha rocket launchers were commonly used on the battlefield, and that gave them an upper hand as well. Uh, yes, uh, I don't want to get ahead of anybody, but one of the biggest problems, I think, that from the very beginning of the war that the Germans had is that uh, they had a total disdain for the uh, intelligence and ability of Slavic peoples. Uh, and they thought the great Aryan machine was going to conquer everybody. Uh, they learned that, uh, that they failed to realize how much far superior the Soviet, uh, in general, even the, the Russian um, uh, clothing was in the uh, winters when uh, they, many of them froze to death and the Russians, uh, the Soviet uh, uh, soldiers were able to withstand the, the cold weather because their clothing was, was much, much better. And even in this battle, they chose tanks, and they had tanks, which were, as you saw in the, the film so far, that could go through a, uh, a building like hot knife goes through butter. That was the strength of the, the Panzers, which were largest and most powerful tanks. Even in that battle, they, they were so powerful uh, than any other tank. Problem was, as the, hopefully the movie will show out, was they was not as maneuverable as the T-34, which was a miraculous fast-moving tank and basically outmaneuvered the, uh, and uh, basically decimated the T-34, the I mean the Panzers, and that was the beginning of the end. But uh, the, the great tank tour basically was nothing after that battle. Thank you, comrade. Um, and I just wanted to add to that uh, one thing on the German intelligence and then another on the tanks is the German intelligence also underestimated uh, the other allies at this time. There was in uh, southern Europe, south of Italy, fascist Italy, 
there was, I forget what the name of the operation was. It was basically they dressed up a, a dead um, British person and some sort of British Royal Naval Guard with fake note that said that they were going to invade Greece and Sardinia. What they did was they crossed over and invaded uh, Sicily, which was the start of the liberation of Italy. And so that really, you know, distracted Hitler because it was a complete surprise. And now he had to come to the aid of the doomed fascist Italian regime and had to divert forces away from Kursk. So that was another thing that happened. And that's 80 years ago to today. We had Americans that fought in that um, liberation of Italy. So another thing to be proud of. But then real quick on the um, on the tanks, one of the things that I think is really good about Soviet and, you know, just typically communist weaponry was that. You know, NATO countries and Western countries, even back to Nazi Germany, would always have this massive propaganda about how good their tanks were and how they had superior firepower. And even after that, they were making the the wonder weapons. But they kept getting destroyed on the battlefield when it came up to Soviet weaponry because Soviets were relying on efficiency. How good could it get through the mud and the muck? How good could it shoot at the enemy? Could it be repaired on the fly? And this is true for everything from the AK-47 up to um, the Soviet tanks and and aircraft. So I just wanted to add that in there. Uh, Yes, I was going to say something uh, similar to what you were referring to as far as the advantage of the Soviet weaponry. And that is that even today, Russians have inherited that advantage in Soviet weaponry, because you saw all of this propaganda about how great the German Leopard tanks were supposed to be, and then they ended up getting destroyed on the battlefield in Ukraine like nothing. And it's because the Russians learned from the Soviets how to build weapons, not just for show, not just for, you know, just some fancy technology, but to build something that was reliable that they could fix easily so yeah that's something i just wanted to throw out there all right thank you comrade uh i mean the nazi the nazi doctrine and uh the armored forces of germany they were mostly from uh from uh the farms and the working class and how did uh, they manage you know to sacrifice their lives for the corporations, the German corporations, just like Raj. You see, those people, like I, I am uh, from the experience of the Eritrean-Ethiopian war, and most of the people who fight on the side of the ruling classes are poor, like in the case of Ethiopia, peasants and workers, and uh, some members of the intelligentsia. And uh, basically, they are not animals. I mean, they have uh, some level of consciousness, but their level of dedication and sacrifice, again, is like the Soviet Union, which they could have understood by reading because they, are, they were literate. And how did uh, spiritually, they were, they were like, to me, they were like savages. Uh, so, so how did the educational machine or the propaganda machine of Hitler made them like, uh, you know, like, like animals to be roasted in a, a mechanized war. Yeah, that's true, comrades. You're right. Uh, they were animals. And 
they became animals over eight years from 1933 when Hitler arrived to power uh, until you know Barbarossa 1941. They were told to show no mercy on the Eastern Front, to forget all the rules of war. You know they could uh, bayonet a woman that's pregnant. You know for example they did that. They did all kind of stuff, and um, you know that's the Nazi ideology they were brainwashed with. It's kind of like what happened in Ukraine, you know, between 2014 to 2022 for eight years, same kind of principle, you know, the Ukraine-Nazis have totally brainwashed the population. Lots of them support, you know, the, the Nazis, you know, that's the way it is. And uh, even worse, in my opinion, is that after the tragic experiences of the Second World War and First World War, you have the American uh, army and the NATO army that are ready to be, if there is like a thermonuclear war, they are going to be wiped out because they are in the front line. I find that very complex, really. You know, human beings who can, uh, who have intelligence, uh, especially a thermonuclear war, you know, perishing in a very, and trans, getting transformed into radioactive uh, rubber, that, that cannot be understood at all. Right, it's, it's part of uh, the complex reality that we're looking at right now. Hello, everyone. So I have a comment that I'm going to end with a question. So regarding the Battle of Kursk, what was so important about it was that Stalingrad had already happened. But when Stalingrad happened, the, the Western European countries, well, the United States and Britain, were not sure. They saw the Soviet Union was fighting back, but they didn't know which way it was going to go still. And it was cursed that everyone knew what the, the finale, what the path was going to be for the next couple of years. But from the onset, what is not really known in our country is that the Soviet Union was arming and training Weimar Germany. That's the 1920s Germany. They had a thing called the Reichswehr. It's different military under different period. And they were collaborating with the Soviet Union. They had in within the Soviet Union a secret tank school, an infantry school, an airplane school, and an artillery and chemical school. And what the deal was, was that the Soviet Union was going to modernize its technology with German advanced technology. And in turn, they were going to rearm Weimar Germany, which at the time had the second largest communist movement in the world outside of the Soviet Union. And Berlin was called, like the, the Red City was what it was called. Uh, but as you know, the capitalists created or supported the Nazis and the rest is history. But a lot of the Wehrmacht and the Nazi officers were actually classmates with Soviet officers, which goes into the, the so-called Great Purges, which is why they actually happened, was that the Nazis really did have uh, collaboration with the Soviet officers. Um, but from the onset of the war, immediately, as soon as it happened, the Nazis knew that they were going to lose because of the resistance of the Soviet Union. And they knew it immediately, as soon as it started. So that's why they collaborated with, with Britain. And so that's my question to the People's School, to anyone here or the directors. What was the difference in the responses and the diplomacy between the Soviet Union and England, which was not supporting, but the Soviet Union and the United States, which did support, because we mentioned at the last class, Lend-Lease, which came at a very important time for the Soviet Union. It was, was spearheaded by FDR. All right. Yeah, uh, you're right. Um, actually, um, the uh, Roosevelt administration was more favorable to the Second Front and Churchill was, was putting the brakes on it, you know, because um, he was always an anti-communist. I mean, so was 
Roosevelt, but not as much. So I guess it would explain, you know, they wanted to bleed the Red Army white, but especially Churchill did. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I'll also just add on that, that I think a difference between, you know, British and Russian relations and American and Russian relations is other than the Russian Civil War and then the subsequent Cold War after World War II, um, you know, our interventions against Russia, that many. And Britain was basically a rival of Russia for a while. So there's already a lot of um, tension there. And I think that's what led to Britain being more standoffish. And of course, they influenced the Truman administration, which then went ahead and turned around against the USSR. I, I believe Churchill and Truman were the ones that invented the lie about the Iron Curtain. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to just add to this. If I'm incorrect, correct me. I believe it was Churchill when he was younger who said, we got to kill the Bolshevik baby in the cradle before it grows up. So Churchill was always anti-communist. And I want to mention that FDR's wife was speaking at Communist Party meetings. I don't know if people know that. She spoke at the meetings of American Youth for Democracy. She was a keynote speaker, which was the, the YCL, Young Communist League, changed its name to American Youth for Democracy. And she spoke at those meetings. And there were communists in the State Department in the Roosevelt administration. I don't know of any that were in uh, Churchill, that's all. I want to add to that, comrade, that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife, she established a friendship with Ludmila Pavlichenko, the uh, Soviet female sniper, the best in history, uh, because uh, she, after the war, she kept visiting, she visited her and asked specifically to meet her again, you know. So they had a friendship going on. Even the husband was dead already. Thank you, comrades. And, you know, briefly as well, I believe Eleanor Roosevelt met with the uh, Bonus Army or whoever it was um, that was protesting outside the White House in the 30s after the Hoover administration would in the previous year. So just wanted to add that in there. I'll take these two hands real quick, and then we'll go ahead and get to the presentation. Excellent detail. Uh, I knew the, I knew the Soviet Subway had military academies with uh, and, uh, the Chinese, but I didn't know they also had Weimar German. But what what particular role did Len Lease play uh, in uh, uh, helping bolster the the Soviets or help with their war effort? Because I know they were facing shortages of trucks. Oh, land lease. Okay. Yeah. Land lease. Uh, yeah, it was important, uh, especially psychologically. Uh, in reality, it was 10% of Soviets' war production. Okay. 90% of the armament uh, used during the war uh, on the Soviet front by the USSR was produced by the USSR. 10% came from the land lease. And, uh, you know, something funny is uh, they waited for the second front, right? And uh, the Soviets did, of course, for three years. And uh, the land lease, you know, g gave the Soviet army a lot of um, uh, food in cans, you know, like um, um, meat in cans, you know, like uh, spam and stuff like that today, right? And uh, the Soviet soldiers would eat that in the front. They would call it the second front, that the spam can, you know, meat. Disgusting. 
All right, thank you, comrade. Just a little tidbit, a little fact to add on to uh, a lot of uh, Nazis that came out of the Weimar Republic were ex-communists, right? Uh, it was the Red City. Berlin was or was the Red City. Uh, they were known as beef steaks because they went to the brown shirts, right? Uh, brown on the outside, red on the inside. I think this lends a little bit of credence towards the uh, state of mind people were in in Weimar, having their uh, military pr uh, capacity uh, dwindled after World War I, uh, uh, having their productive capacity dwindled after World War I. Uh, they were interested in national, uh, uh, you know, unification, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, could you clarify that question? Uh, I, I think that it was misconstrued. Uh, you were asking, what is the difference between uh, Soviets' involvement in Weimar, Weimar Republic compared to, uh, like, uh, America's Lend-Lease in Europe? Not the difference between uh, America's relations with Soviets and compared to UK's relations with Soviets, correct? Actually, it was the difference between the British and the Americans. The, what was the difference between the way they treated the Soviet Union? All right. Thank you, comrades. We'll go ahead and get back to the presentation. And this is the Battle of Kursk, Operation Citadel. The Kursk salient. The Kursk salient was located at the junction of German Army Group Center around the city of Orel and German Army Group South around the city of Kharkov. A side note, uh, Germany would always uh, call their army uh, France, they would call them groups. The Soviets call them France, okay? The Ninth Army of Group Army Center that would attack from the north was commanded by General Walter Model. The Fourth Panzer Army of Group Army South that would attack from the south was commanded by Marshal von Manstein. Three elite SS divisions were part of the Group Army South. The first SS Panzer Division, Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler, uh, which was Hitler's bodyguard's troops. And uh, when Hitler died, it was two of them who took care of his body under his um, co uh, uh, orders, you know, before he killed himself. The second SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, that used the Wolf Angel symbol the one that Azov Ukronazis are using today, you see it all every day on their uniforms. And then the third SS Panzer Division, Totenkopf, which means death head, whose symbol is also widely used by Ukronazi troops in the current war. And I just wanted to add real quick, uh, salient just basically is a synonym for bulge. So when you hear that, that's all it means. Hitler's objective was to smash Soviet defenses with a tank avalanche. Inside the salient, there were 1.3 million Red Army men, 20,000 guns and mortars, 3,600 tanks. Two armored colossus were waiting to collide head on. The Soviet plan was to annihilate the enemy in both the regions of Orel and Kharkov and to liberate the Ukraine up to the Dniepr River as well as the Donbass. Konstantin Rokosovsky commanded the Central Front to the north of the salient, facing Model's Ninth Army. Nikolai Vatutin commanded the Voronezh Front to the south, facing Manstein Fourth Panzer Army. Then Ivan Konev commanded the Steppe Front, kept in reserve. 
the whole Red Army Kursk operation was directed by two marshals of the USSR, the one and only Georgi Zhukov and Alexander Vasilevsky, the gods of war. German soldiers were captured who gave the day and time of the start of Citadel. It was July 5th at 0300. That was the time Vatutin and Rokosovsky chose to unleash an avalanche of katushas and artillery, the gods of war, on the enemy's battle dispositions. This shelling caused considerable confusion and great casualties on the Germans and disrupted their initial assault. The Wehrmacht attacked Rokosovsky's central front at 0530 and Vatutin's Voronezh front at 0600 and a savage battle began, the first day of which German had lost 25,000 men and 200 tanks. By the second day, the SS divisions in the south had advanced four miles into Vatutin's front. And after one week, only nine miles. All right, we're going to watch from the unknown war again. In the Kremlin, the Soviet high command considered the options. The choice was between striking first or letting the Nazis attack and then reply. Stalin decided to let the Germans throw themselves on the Russian guns. The Soviet divisions in the salient were to set up box defenses with as many as seven or eight defense lines, echelon a hundred miles deep. When the Nazis had exhausted themselves, the Red Army would attack. Stalin appointed Marshals Zhukov and Vasilevsky to oversee the operation. By 1943, Soviet industry had more than overcome the setbacks of the early part of the war. Though half its capacity had been lost at the outset, it was now outproducing Hitler's Reich. Deep behind the Urals, the mills operated day and night, forging steel for the Red Army's tanks and shells. for the defensive. They were the means of carrying the war into Germany. They gave the Red Army preponderance in what was to become the greatest armored conflict in the entire history of warfare. The numbers were ominous. half a million freight cars rolled into Kursk. 
The Soviets crammed 10 field armies into the salient, plus two tank armies and two air fleets. 1,300,000 men, nearly 20,000 guns and mortars, over 3,600 tanks. Five more field armies, a tank army, and an air fleet were in reserve. Marshal Zhukov arrived to supervise the preparations. The salient was 100 miles wide at its base and 75 miles deep, pointing west. On the central front was Marshal Rokossovsky. Marshal Vatutin commanded the Voronezh front. Marshal Konyev held the general reserve. They were ready. They expected the Nazi attack somewhere between July 3rd and July 6th. The Unknown War will continue in a moment. Dick Mag Von Manstein, commander of the German army, Group South, had not been enthusiastic about Hitler's plans. He suspected that the Soviet strength might be too great to overcome. Himmler arrived to inspect the pride of the SS, three divisions of them. The Liebstandard, Das Reich, and the Totenkopf, the Death's Head. The purely Germanic SS. They were about to enter their last and fiercest battle. On the eve of the battle, Hitler announced, Soldiers of the Reich, you are to take part in an offensive of such importance the whole future of the war may depend on its outcome. More than anything else, your victory will show the world that the resistance to the power of the German army is hopeless. Other messages went home to Germany. Father, the world looking at us should stand with bated breath. We're ready to fight. The justification of the war is that Germany will gain vital space. It is for this that we are ready, if necessary, to burn the whole world to ashes. Inside the salient, too, the mail came and went. Letters home. But to homes that no longer existed. To villages that had been put to the torch. To mothers, fathers, children, wives, living a nightmare. Or already.
already did. Occupied lands, the soldiers' kin were fighting their long battle as partisans. All across the upper Donetsk Valley, the green fields of wheat were turning yellow under a gentle westerly breeze. But the sense of peace was illusory. The Soviet units had been briefed and rehearsed. All around their perimeter, they had sown mines to a density of 4,000 to every mile. Special tank destroyer squads were waiting for the panzers in foxholes in the middle of the minefields. The minefields themselves were designed to channel the German armor onto Russian anti-tank guns, massed in groups and firing broadsides at successive targets. Thousands of Russian guns were zeroed in. Over 900 Katusha rocket launchers were loaded. The troops were confident. Two of the field armies were veterans of Stalingrad. On the field of Kursk, as June ended, there were the makings of Armageddon. Two and a quarter million men. Over 6,000 tanks. 29,000 guns and mortars. All silent, waiting. some casual shooting disturbing the quiet. A few snipers dueling to relieve the tension. During the night of July 4th, a Soviet patrol brought in a prisoner. He said that the German troops had been given a special issue of schnapps and rations for five days. Each hour was next morning. North of the salient, the 4th Panzer Army stood, the most powerful force ever put under a single command in the German army. Nine Panzer divisions on a front of only 30 miles. If this enormous strength did not break the Soviets, nothing ever would possibility that it might not produce a strange fatalism in the waiting Nazis.
Marshal Vatutin passed the word. It was a colossal battle of attrition. What mattered was not land, but the annihilation of men and machines. Whoever could hand out the most punishment would win. Even before dawn, the Nazis began to suffer. The artillery strike had caught them in their concentration areas. At two in the afternoon of July 5th, the Germans launched their first wave, some 2,000 tanks. Their firepower and mobility were even greater than during the early blitzkriegs. Greater still was the Soviet power. One Nazi crewman reported, it seemed as if he were driving into a ring of flame. The Unknown War will continue in a moment. The Unknown War. Many of the Nazi tanks founded in the minefields in the first half mile. The Russian batteries picked them off in minutes. It was carnage of a kind not seen since the terrible battles of the First World War. received such an overwhelming impression of Russian strength and numbers as on that day. Tigers and Ferdinands broke through in isolated groups. 
the new Panther tanks were less successful. Everywhere they were hounded by the Soviet infantry. Nazis exercised local superiority in the air, but everywhere over the battlefield, their strength was contested. The Luftwaffe was not allowed to become a decisive factor. first ferocious day, the Germans had lost 25,000 men and 200 tanks on the northern edge of the salient, and they were still mired in the first line of Soviet defenses. The second line was stronger still. southern flank of the salient, where the 48th Panzer Corps and the three SS armored divisions were attacking, the fighting was even fiercer. Spearhead managed to dent the Russian line, the only action that was anything like a success. Under intense fire, the SS were forced to spend the night in the swamp. The sun rose at four o'clock on the second day of the battle, and with it came the Russian fighters. They destroyed 70 of one Panzer Division's tanks in 20 minutes. second day, the Germans struggled to exploit their modest success in the south. Two of the SS divisions clawed their way forward nearly four miles. The battle raged for a week. The Nazis poured in reinforcements. By the night of July 11, they had driven a bulge 15 miles wide and nine miles deep into Vatutin's front. All right, now we'll have our second round of questions and comments. 
And uh, in the next section, I think we'll just combine it with the last section. Um, but we wanted to show as much of that documentary as possible. Hey, comrade, I want to make a, uh, I want a disclaimer on that video. Okay, so uh, Lancaster made one mistake in this section here. Okay, he calls Vatutin, Rokosovsky, and Konev, he called them marshals. They were not marshal at the time. They became marshal a year later in 44. The only two marshals of the USSR were Zhukov and Vasilevsky. And um, so Konev and Rokosovsky were made marshals by Stalin in 44. But Vatutin, he never was because the Ukrainians from Bandera killed him in February 44. He was still general. He would have been a marshal, but the Ukrainians got him. Right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to, uh, you know, I've been seeing a lot of, uh, you know, the ultra left, uh, you know, bringing back the, you know, talk badly about the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact as, a, you know, as a collaboration with the Nazis. But, you know, this is a perfect example of what the Molotov Ribbentrop achieved without those two years to uh, build uh, the steel industry and armaments they would have probably been crushed by the Nazis at this battle if they even made it that far. So I just wanted to, you know, bring that up that, you know, I, I still see a lot of ultra left saying that, you know, the Soviets never should have uh, signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop, but, you know, this is exactly why they did it. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Okay. Let's not fall into a trap to think that this was all done all as far as the um, armaments by the, by the Soviets. They had an alliance with the United States and England. Remember that. In this country, American workers went to factories and built armaments for the Soviets. Did you all know that? It was called the Lend-Lease, interestingly enough. The Lend-Lease, some people say, oh, it was nothing. It was something. The Soviets needed a breathing space and they got it with Lend-Lease until they were able to rebuild their factories. And a lot of them were sent uh, past the Ural Mountains towards that part of Siberia. But in the beginning, when they were first hit, they needed as much help as they can get. And the Lend-Lease program was a positive thing, which American communists supported. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, it's interesting that this um, this film, which is an excellent series we listened, is narrated by Burt Lancaster, uh, because today, under completely different circumstances, I just want to give a reference to Patrick Lancaster, who's an American who's lived in Ukraine for nine years in Donbass. Uh, he's producing excellent videos. He, he was just on the actual front lines themselves in the trenches uh, just like a day ago. Uh, but back on the Soviet Union where the, the comrades mentioned with the Molotov Pact. Uh, yes, all that was true. At the same time, a lot of history going back, it's been said the Soviet Union was actually planning to attack Nazi Germany as well. Yes, they were doing the truces with them, plant buying time. Uh, but I recommend everybody who hears our podcast and everything, look up the Brest Fortress. What happened was as soon as the Germans and their allies, because by the way, at the time, the German invasion of the Soviet Union would have looked like a NATO invasion. All these little countries, all these little allies, they all crossed together. There was a blue brigade from Spain. You had, uh, you know, Italy, you had Hungary, Romania, all these countries came. But 
at the very onset, as soon as they, they started attacking the Soviet Union, uh, they knew they, they woke up. They said they knew immediately they weren't going to win. That's why the Abware under Canaris was already collaborating with Britain and America. Uh, from the onset, they were collaborating with the U.S. and Britain. 90 seconds. Because and we need to look up the breast, the breast fortress, the Soviet Union. Yeah, the, we say, oh, they were outdated. Yes, they were. But at the same time, they had the most modern weapons. They had the most fighting spirit. And uh, from the very onset, the Soviet Union was was destroying the Nazi Germany. They knew it. They knew it from the very onset. As soon as they crossed the border, they knew it. All right. Thank you, comrade. We'll take these two hands and then we'll get back to the presentation. I just want to point out how um, how extreme the conditions were. The largest tank battle in history. And just imagine being there on the ground. My nerves would be ruined. I don't know how anyone can fight under those conditions, but they did. What they sacrificed, it's enormous. Even the survivors, that's all from me. Thank you, comrade. And I think it really shows how, you know, a country that is trying to survive, a country that survival is at stake, will do anything to survive. And so the Battle of Kursk was a meat grinder. I mean, it was quite literally, you had treads that were grinding people's bones to dust underneath them. But it was a battle that, you know, was for the existence of the Soviet Union, and they won. And so I think that that's um, really important, especially if if the war today turns and there ends up being, you know, either Ukraine Nazi or NATO forces on Russia's front. Don't think that they're just going to give in. Could be the same meat grinders if it turns that way. I just think it's great that, you know, this is the same country that like just barely 15 years before was attacked by the whole entire world. As, again, uh, with all the reactionary financial capital, you know, it was like the United States, France, uh, the, the Entente powers in World War One, And then, you know, they have to deal with this again in World War Two, um, And they won both times. You know, that that says a lot about the people and the, the, the unbreakable will of the people in the Soviet Union. People can say whatever they want. Ultra leftists can say whatever they want. But, you know, they're not relevant anywhere. So it doesn't really matter. Thank you, comrade. And one thing I want to say before we go back to our presentation is, did anarchists defeat the fascists? Nope. Did the Maoists defeat the fascists? Nope. It was the communists that did. It was the communists allied in a united front um, with the United States and United Kingdom that were able to win that war. So I just wanted to add that in before we go to our next section. The next section is the Battle of Kursk, the Soviet counteroffensive. The Battle of Kursk, Operation Kutuzov. On July 12th, Zhukov released his reserves and switched the Red Army into counteroffensive mode. That day, Soviet T-34s hit German Panther and Tiger Panzer head-on, and the tide of the battle turned in favor of the Red Army. Operation Citadel was a failure. By July 16th, the Wehrmacht was in full retreat in the south, pursued by Vatutin's troops, joined by Konev's stepped front two days later. The Red Army's counteroffensive was given the code name Operation Kutuzov after the Russian general who beat Napoleon in a patriotic war of 1812. Remember, comrades, the very first patriotic war was 1812 against Napoleon. And uh, 
when Molotov named this war the Great Patriotic War, he was thinking of 1812, and it was a remake of that, this time against the Nazi Germany. In the north, around the city of Orel, the Nazi high command ordered its troops to fight to the last man. In that region, Soviet partisans operating behind German lines made life a living hell for the Wehrmacht, blowing up railways, attacking garrisons, ambushing road convoys. In retaliation, the Nazi fury knew no bounds. Old men, women, and children were slaughtered like cattle. Entire towns and villages burned to ashes. Orel was finally liberated on August 5th. On that same day in the south, Konev's men cleared Belgorod of the last Nazis. So, on August 5th, 1943, two ancient Russian cities were liberated after intense fighting. The steppe front kept pushing south, and Konev's troops entered Kharkov on August 23rd. That ended the Battle of Kursk and Operation Kutuzov. The savage battle that began July 5th lasted 50 days. Right, and then we'll watch the unknown war. And then after this, we'll go straight to the third section. That night, Zhukov released his reserves, the 5th Guards Army, and Rodnistrov's 5th Guards Armored Force. They were fresh, confident, experienced. And their ammunition bays were full. Unknown War will return in a moment. The Unknown War. The Germans scraped together every tank that would run, some 600 of them, and began their last drive. Russian battle tank, the T-34, faced heavier equipment, Tigers and Panthers. But while the German tanks outgunned the Russians, they were slower, and the Panthers could be set afire with ease through their lighter engine armor. The T-34s were faster, more maneuverable, and more numerous. Through the hot morning of July 12th, the two armies closed for the most terrible armored encounter of all time. A brutal slugging match in clouds of stifling dust and oily smoke. Just before noon, they met head-on.
by nightfall it was over. More than half of the German tanks had been annihilated. The rest were in full retreat. Stalingrad had been a psychological victory. Kursk was an undeniable triumph of Soviet arms and generalship. It had been, as Marshal Konyev put it, the swan song of the German armored force. to cancel Operation Citadel. The Allies had landed in Sicily and Hitler needed reinforcements for Italy. But in fact, Operation Citadel had already canceled itself. Operation Kutuzov the Soviet counteroffensive was underway. pulled back from the shambles, harried constantly by the Soviet pursuit. The Red Army rolled out of the salient towards Orel. But since, Volhoff and Potinets were liberated. It was hard fighting. Though their armor had been used up, the German infantrymen were mostly young, healthy, and stubborn. Very few of them were ready to surrender.
By now, the Nazis understood the nature of the Russian soldier. A German general wrote, he is immune to the most incredible hardships and does not even appear to notice them. He seems equally indifferent to bombs and shells. from the relentless Soviet pressure, the Germans destroyed everything behind them. They burned foodstuffs, raised farms and killed cattle, sowed the fields with mines, blew up the railroads. The Red Army rode forward into a wasteland. German occupation for two years. It had been stripped of everything of value. Its people violated. Those who survived showed their gratitude with what treasures they had left. over for them. But peace would begin with nothing but memories. This is the um, aftermath and the significance. Comrade, you have the floor. The victory salute. To mark the victories at Orel and Belgorod, a salute of 12 salvos of 120 guns was fired in Moscow. This was the first victory salute of the Great Patriotic War. There would be 300 such salvos ordered by Stalin in the remaining years of the war. The deep voice of Yuri Levitan, Moscow Radio's star announcer, now uttered for the first time phrases that were to become like sweet and familiar music during the next two years. Tonight, at 24 o'clock on August 5th, the capital of our country, Moscow, will salute the valiant troops that liberated Orel and Belgorod with 12 artillery salvos from 120 guns. I express my thanks to all the troops that took part in the offensive. 
Eternal glory to the heroes who fell for the freedom of our country, death to the German invaders. Marshal of the Soviet Union, Stalin, turning the tide definitely. With only some slight variations in the wording, this was to become the consecrated text which Russia was to hear over the radio more than 300 times before the final victory over Germany and Japan. There was nothing fortuitous or arbitrary in the Russian decision to celebrate the victory at Kursk with those first victory salvos and fireworks. The Russian command knew that by winning the Battle of Kursk, Russia had in effect won the war. In retrospect, it can be said that if the Battle of Stalingrad was a political, psychological turning point of the whole war in the East, the German defeat at the Battle of Kursk was its military turning point. The Wehrmacht suffered a defeat from which he never recovered. After Kursk, the Nazi command was compelled to abandon its offensive strategy and to go over to the defensive along the entire German-Soviet front. This meant that the backbone of the German army had been broken. The strategic initiative was now unequivocally in the hands of the Red Army. This finally turned the tide of the war. All right, and we'll stop for a brief round of questions and comments, if anybody has any. What I'd like to say just before we get to our wrap-up is that this wasn't just something that was extremely important and significant to the Soviets or even just the communists in the world. People all around the world heard about the Battle of Kursk, and people all around the world understood just what it meant. And from that point on, basically, the Nazis were in retreat. And if you compare that to just two years before, the world was worried that the Nazis were going to win because they were they had took huge swaths of Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. They were heading towards Baku and they were turned back. And so it's very significant and it's something that we want to honor. Yes, uh, depending on how much time you had, there's a, uh, a beautiful video, which I've heard uh, in the past and uh, beautiful and I, and I uh, brought up. It's about two minutes. Uh, if you could play that at the end. Uh, so you can stick that in. Uh, it's an honor to the rocket that uh, I forgot even about there in the beginning when I mentioned the T-34, that the Kyushu uh, rocket was also very uh, instrumental in, in winning that battle. And it, it, that is like a, uh, a godsend to the uh, Soviet people. And uh, they sang song, many, many songs, and uh, that's a two-minute song. Which, and I sent you the link to it. All right. I don't think we'll be able to play that, but we can I can look at it. And if it's good, I can make sure to post it after the class. But we will be ending this class with the song Katusha in honor of that. Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. OK, I want to mention one thing. When they brought back the Nazi paraphernalia that they captured, Soviet soldiers, they threw them at the foot of Lenin's tomb, there was a big ceremony in 1945 uh, at the end of the war. And they said, for, for Comrade Stalin, that's something you don't hear about too much. That did happen because there was an ideological bent on that war, which is not common among many military 
situations today throughout the world. But it was for Comrade Stalin. Thank you. I want to bring a point too, Comrade. Yes. Okay. So those three names you heard, uh, Konev, Rokosovsky, and uh, Vatutin. Okay. Konev and um, Rokosovsky, Zhukov, were the one uh, that led the parade that Angelo is talking about. Okay. And then Konev was right on the stand with Stalin. Okay. When they threw 200 banners of the divisions, Nazi division, to the foot of Lenin. It was symbolic. It was like uh, what the Roman used to do uh, back in the Roman Empire. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, just to tie things back quickly to modern day, does anybody who's keeping track know who currently is in possession of this area right now in the Ukraine? Does anybody have a quick update on that? Thank you. Yeah, so I can go ahead and answer that real quick. Kursk is in Russia. It's north of Kharkov. It's towards the border with Belarus. So currently, the Russian Federation is in control of that area. Of course, Kharkov um, is in Ukraine. I believe, Comrade can correct me if I'm wrong, that's still in Ukraine Nazi hands. So, but we need to keep a close eye on it because that war very much mirrors the Great Patriotic War from 80 years ago. Absolutely, Comrade. And I want to bring the point that uh, you remember that name Belgorod that was liberated on August 5th, 43? This is where, like a month ago, the Ukro-Nazi, that's in Russia proper, right? Not so far from Kharkov. The Ukro-Nazis invaded there, that area, you know, for like 24 hours until the ass got kicked, you know, by the Russian army. But they did. It was right about Belgorod, okay? On the Russian side. All right, thank you. And it just goes to show that German tanks burned then after Soviet tanks destroyed it. German tanks will burn now when the Russian tanks destroy it. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the class tonight. I want to thank everybody that was able to attend tonight and all the comments that we had. Like we had said, we're going to go ahead and honor all of the major battles until uh, the 80th anniversary of Victory Day. I believe the next one we're actually going to cover is the liberation of Kiev, which is, of course, going to be very significant as we relate it to the current day. And then New Outlook Publishers, give an update on that real quick. Thank you. Uh, please visit our partner publishing house, newoutlookpublishers.store. Find a lot of great works, a lot of great works. And of course, relevant to uh, the United Front, the struggle against fascism by, and law by Georgi Dimitrov is a great read. Um, once again, newoutlookpublishers.store. Thank you. All right, thank you. And when you uh, go ahead and buy books from New Outlook Publishers, you support the party and the school. So it really helps us out when you're able to do that. And lastly, our legal drive. So last year, almost a year ago by now, uh, we were attacked and sabotaged by ultra-left wreckers that tried to steal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA. They failed, but they will be held accountable, and there are still things they took from us that we've not got back, like videos, imagery, audio, etc. That is why we still need donations to the legal drive. So if you can, if you can go ahead and donate anything, whether it's a couple dollars or more money, you know, $20, $30, whatever you can go ahead and give, it doesn't have to be much. You can go ahead and go to partyofcommunistusa.net slash donations. There will be a box that you can check off that says PSMLS legal funds and try to donate on Tuesday or Thursday so it's easier for us to sort through. And that money will go to the legal fund and anything helps with that. Like I said, if you can give anything, whether it's only a couple of dollars, 
It's not necessarily, you know, the quantity of money that you give us. That always helps if you can give us more. But it's the amount of people that show support for the school, the people that come to these classes, that enjoy them every week, that value this education and want to see us be able to go forward and keep doing what we're doing. Um, please go ahead and support us uh, with our legal fund if you can. And um, before we go ahead and play Katusha to end off for tonight, Comrade General Secretary, is there anything that you'd like to say? No, no, there isn't any. Just I'm glad that the school is doing well. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Comrade. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.